Friday is Purim. And of course, I always feel that I think people make a big mistake. Uh, what happens is that most people go through a holiday, whatever that is, right? And if they ask themselves, have they spiritually grown? If they're honest with themselves, they'll say no. I've eaten a lot, I slept, I ate, I davened, and I did whatever the mitzvah of the day is, right? But have they grown spiritually? Not really. And, um, but most people don't want to look at that. Why is it they haven't grown spiritually? There, there are many ideas. But I always feel that one of the uh, primary reasons is because they don't really know what the holiday is about, other than the historical event. Every event, every holiday in Judaism has, is, has a uh, history behind it. Something happened to the Jews that obviously in some way uh, initiated the holiday. The Torah, of course, uh, says, uh, you know, which of the holidays like Pesach and Shavuos, and then you have Sukkot and Kippur and Roshan and so on, you know. Um, and then, of course, there's Hanukkah and Purim, which are, of course, are rabbinical. <clears throat> but the truth is that in order to really grow from a holiday, a Yom Tov, whatever you want to call it, you need to understand what it is. And it's not enough to understand the primary event. I call it the, the historical event itself is called the primary Tikkun event. Because every holiday isn't a commemoration. That's not what its purpose is. Jews don't commemorate anything. Goyim commemorate, but Jews don't. Jews actively observe a Yom Tov to continue a process called Tikkun, rectification. In some way, that observance of that holiday allows a Jew to accelerate or to advance the process where God will re-enter creation. It's a very different concept than what's called uh, uh, commemoration, you know. So that's, so therefore the holiday itself is called a primary Tikkun event even though it manifests itself as a holiday, as a historical event. But what you really have to understand is what's the guts of that event. What really happened in that event? And as a result of that, what can we take away? What's the, 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 the lesson, so to speak, the spiritual lesson of that holiday itself? That is the question. And the truth is, if you want to grow from a holiday in any which way, you need to understand the real event, not the historical event, but what really happened, okay? That should be to you as a model, a model in order to understand the whole concept of what a holiday is and how to grow from it spiritually. If you haven't tapped into that, you won't grow spiritually. So I don't care how many homentashen you eat on Purim, you know, how many homentashen you eat and, uh, you know, and, uh, and all the stuff, all the Mishnah Mishnah you're gonna get the cookies and the cakes and all that, you know, you can, you can sit and eat that there all day long. It's not going to move you spiritually, you see. <clears throat> so I like to take this occasion to use this concept, this model, of delving into the spiritual idea of the holiday <clears throat> in order to enhance and to hopefully enable you to grow spiritually. And since obviously this uh, week, at the end of the week, Shushan Purim, of course, Yushalayim, um, to really try to grow into that, but to really try to understand what Purim is about. And there's a lot of very important themes of Purim. Uh, so I'm going to try to cover what I can.
and hopefully that will really help you what's called resonate with the Yontif or the holiday. That's my purpose. Okay, now <clears throat> we'll start. First idea, if it wasn't for the fact that there was a Megillah that says <clears throat> there was an event that occurred, you know, Mordechai is the hero, right? Esther is the heroine, right? Not heroine, but heroine, right? <laughs> I want this to be an advertisement for drug addiction. But anyway, um, and of course, Haman is the villain, right? And then you have Ahasuerus, uh, you know, he's got his role. Uh, it's really a fascinating story. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a classic, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but uh, it's a classic drama for Hollywood, you know, in that sense. You know, it's, it's got everything you want, you know, drama, mystery, whatever. However, it has an incredible amount of spiritual concepts. And this is what you have to immerse in, think about, in order to really grow from Purim. Now, like I said, if it wasn't for the fact that the Torah talked about Purim and, you know, the uh, Megillah and so on, and actually said that this happened, I would never believe it happened. Why? <clears throat> because Purim is a story of one miracle after the other. Now, miracles don't happen very often, you see. So uh, when you look at a story that's one miracle after the other, what you begin to say is, what is this? this? This could never have happened. You see? What are the miracles of Purim? That's what I'd like to show you. There's between 14, at least 14 and 15 things that should never have happened, yet they all did. And that's what makes the Purim story so remarkable. Let's start from the beginning. The story starts off with, you know uh, that Ahasuerus uh, has this humongous Suda, oh no, the 180 days, you know, it's incredible. And he was really celebrating the fact that the base of Middash wasn't built, but that's the Chazal say that, that's why he was celebrating. And so in any case, <clears throat> and all of a sudden he comes, he's drunk, obviously, everybody there is drunk with him. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden he has this incredible idea. He wants Vashti, the queen, to appear in front of the people there without any clothing, basically. Okay. Uh, now, that's beyond belief. Why is that? I, I don't care how drunk the guy is. You don't do that. How in the world can you ask his wife, who's the queen, right, to appear in that manner? Not only is it an incredible disgrace to the, to the royalty. You know, forget about the king. There's the office of the king. Forget about Ahasuerus. It's what's called the office of the king, the office of the presidency. You can disgrace yourself. But how do you disgrace the, the, the uh, kingship? But it's not only that. <clears throat> because <clears throat> um, Vashti was the only claim that Ahasuerus had to the throne. Ahasuerus was really a soldier who ro rose in the ranks. Okay. And he married the, the daughter or the granddaughter, whatever, of Balshetza, okay, who was the, uh, was the king. <clears throat> you know, so the only legitimacy that he had to that crown, <clears throat> okay, was, was uh, through Vashti. So by asking Vashti to, to do this, <clears throat> first of all, you destroy the authority of the queen. I mean, what, what can you think about Vashti after she, if she does this, which of course she didn't. <clears throat> he is destroying the authority of the queen. How do you do that? So it's not just Vashti. It's the whole office of the king. It's unheard of. <clears throat> it's completely barbaric. You see? That's number one. 
Second thing I say, which is the first miracle. And no, I never heard of something like that. Nobody does that for all these reasons. Second idea is his whole claim to fame, his whole legitimacy to the crown, is the fact that Vashti is the daughter, the granddaughter of Balshetza. You kill her, you're nobody. Uh, you see, then any, any layman can go and kill you and take over because, you know, as I say, like, you know, with what are you greater than anybody else? Uh, so why would he do that? You see, so that's the second incredible thing. That doesn't make sense. Okay, so what do they do? They wind up killing Vashti. Uh, and then, what is the king going to do? Well, he's got to get married. So, how does it work with kings? Kings usually marry women, right, that are the queen or the princess of some other kingdom. So like that, they cement their kingdoms, you know? It's because sort of like, a, you know, it's a, like a political maneuver in order to cement trade. You know, the, the, the prince of England marries the princess of France, this kind of stuff, you know? So this guy decides to marry a commoner which itself is unheard of, especially in the earlier times, you know, that's exactly how kingdoms ran. You know, you would marry royal, royalty will marry royalty in order to keep it, let's say, within the family, right? Uh, so that's a second incredible, a third incredible idea, that the guy wants to marry commoner. Then there's the fourth idea, a beauty contest, you know? I mean, he obviously took tips from Trump. You know, because Trump, I think, owns Miss America or something like that. You know, uh, this doesn't happen. You don't offer a beauty contest, you know, for Persian. It's, it's an interesting idea. I mean, it's quite creative. But it's not done. Let's put it this way, you see. A beauty contest? That's the fourth miracle. You see? Because obviously, if you weren't going to marry a commoner and it wasn't a beauty contest, how could Esther ever become queen? Obviously. Okay. Now... Who wins this? You can imagine that every girl in Persia vied for the honor, right? Always want to be king of the empire. The Persian empire on the Hashverosh had 127 countries or provinces, which is beyond belief. That's the entire known world, basically, you see. Uh, so everybody, they must have thousands of girls lining up to be the queen, you see? And who wins? Esther. What are the odds? that Esther would win. The truth is there are no odds. Why? Because the Chazals say that she was like 70 years old. You know? Why would a man marry somebody who she's an older woman? Yeah. You know, the question was, was she collecting uh, Social Security or not? That's debatable. You see? But she certainly was eligible. How can he marry a woman like that? And not only that, Chazals say that her complexion was green. You know? Why would somebody do that, right? How did she win? You know, even a bookie in, L in, in Las Vegas wouldn't take a bet that she would win the contest. It just doesn't make any sense, right? Think about it. it, 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 it probably, you know what the problem is? We read the Chumash, and we do not subject it to the test of reasonableness. Whenever you read the Chumash or anything, always ask yourself, is this reasonable or not? Now, that, God forbid, that doesn't mean you don't believe it. Don't get me wrong, you know? But that's what generates questions. Is this reasonable? You see? Now, none of these things I said are reasonable. You see? But yet they happened. Right? Okay. So what, how many miracles we got already? Five. <clears throat> now, next miracle. It just so happens that Bixen Baseresh is plotting to kill the king. Right? Now, that happens. That itself happens, right? But 
that Mordechai should be in the exact spot at the time that they're plotting is incredible. I mean, chance, this is incredible. You had a FISA warrant. <laughs> yeah, a FISA warrant, yeah. But anyway, which itself is an unbelievable uh, chance that he should be at the place where they were plotting, you see? And not only that, people, when they usually plot, they don't raise their voices. Clearly they raise their voices sufficiently where they could be overheard. Why would they do that? So what's, you know, that, that's, that's called muzzle in spades, you see? Yet that's critical. So that's the sixth miracle, you see? And then, of course, what does Mordechai do? He tells Esther, and Esther reports this to the king in the name of Mordechai, right? What would we expect if somebody saves the life of a king? We would expect that the king would reward him. I mean, he saved his life, right? They would have killed Ahasuerus, right? Now, if that's the case, then Ahasuerus should have said to Mordechai, right? Hey, how much money do you want for this, right? I'll make you a duke, whatever they had in those days, right? I'll give you a palace, an estate, right? And so on, you know? I'll even give you an apartment in Jerusalem, <laughs> which is a fortune, right? But he deserved it. You see, so the question is, we find he never rewarded him. Because later on, he says, well, what did we do to Mordechai to reward him, right? That means he never rewarded the guy. I mean, is this guy yoked? You mean, a guy saves your life and you forgot about him? How's that possible? You see, but of course that was critical for the whole Gula. But yet it happened. So what is that, the seventh miracle? That he never rewarded a man that saved his life. Then we have what happens, right? Right before the party of Esther and Homer and so on, the king can't sleep. Now that happens, insomnia. You know, everybody gets insomnia at times, right? But what happens? So he wants to be put to sleep. So what does he do? He wants interesting material that will put him to sleep. So what does he do, right? He wants to read the chronology of the history or whatever, the chronology of the goings-on of the government of Persia. Now, people don't even read this. Who reads this stuff, right? Why would a guy want to read this? Maybe because he wants to go to sleep, right? But this is normal to read the, the, the chronicles of the government, the, you know, the ongoing administration of Persia. And, you know, and I guarantee it was more than one volume, right? It, it had, who knows how many volumes that it had, right? right? So that, that itself was bizarre. Not only that, they walk over and of the 50 volumes of the chronology of Persia, they pull out the exact one that has Mordechai in it. But more than that, I mean, how many pages is he going to turn? They open up the book and there it is. What are the odds that he would read the book, they pull out the exact volume, and when they open the book, there it is, right in front of him. So he's reading it. Oh, it's incredible. It's a mess, you know? Uh, he reads it, and he sees Mordechai saved the life of the king, right? And he says, what do we do to Mordechai for this? So they told him, hey, we didn't do anything for this guy. You know, I don't know what his reaction was, but he must have been astounded. How could they not reward a man like this for saving the life of the king, you see? These are anisim miracles one after the other. Okay, so now the king is thinking, what do I do for Mordechai, right? This is in the middle of the night. Okay, now he didn't want to say, oh, let me wait for the daytime for this, right? He's thinking about this in the nighttime. And of course, who knocks on the door? Homer. 
right? Now that itself was bizarre because what was the, if the king is sleeping, I imagine it was nighttime. Why would Homer knock on his door or whatever the room was, right? To wake up the king in the middle of the night. See, this is also bizarre. And that's what Homer does. He wakes him up and the king says to him, what would you do to a guy? He has a brilliant idea. I'll ask Homer. He's a clugger. He's a smart guy. So what does he do? So he's, he, uh, he asks him, what would you do for a guy? You see? Now Homer answers something which, which, what's called, which stretches credulity beyond anything we can imagine. What does Homer say? Well, of course he thinks he means him, because he's a megalomaniac, right? And Homer says, here's what you do. You take your horse, your garment, right? Your crown, essentially, you, you give everything you own, I mean, what, what, what characterizes you as the king, right? And you know what you do? You put it on this guy, right? And then you lead him to the street saying, this is what happens to a guy that the king wants to honor. <clears throat> now, sounds very interesting, but it was sick. Why? You, you can't believe how sick that was. Why? Forget about the fact that he was thinking of himself. You know, kings in the olden days, there was one thing they thought about all day. Who's going to kill me to take my throne? Think about that. That's why they killed their brothers and their sisters. I mean, you know, that's the first thing they did. As soon as the Roman emperor became Roman emperor, what did he do? He just slaughtered his immediate family because he doesn't need rivals. And this goes on all the time in Rome, right? So the last thing you want to do is put in the mind of Achishverosh that you want his crown, right? So. How could you say that? You know, why would a guy say, by the way, you know, the crown and the horse and everything else that belongs to you that actually indicates royalty, and you put it, you know, and, and, and you go through the street, and you see, so Ahasuerus says, it's kind of his mind. I mean, he obviously wants to take over, you see? He wants to take over my crown. So what he did unwillingly, or rather willingly, I don't know what the guy did, right? But it, he put in the mind of Ahasuerus that Haman, wants to usurp the throne. Which doesn't make sense. Why would a guy do that? Homer knows, he's not stupid. You can't be stupid and be the Grand Vizier. Not at least in Persia. In other countries, yes. <laughs> See? Uh, but in Persia you can't do that. You have to have some measure of intelligence. So the question is, why would he do that? And again, it's Nisim. Because nobody does that. I mean, you want to overthrow is one thing. But you can tell the king you want to overthrow him by pointing this out. Anyway, so what happens? Something incredible. Mordechai, who was the, en who was the enemy of Haman and so on, right? He is now leading. He's got the crown, the garment, and the horse, right? Uh, you see, and he's going through the streets of, of, of Shushan. Now, again, there's something else that doesn't make sense. You know, you want to elevate uh, Mordechai, fine. But why debase your grand vizier at the same time? You see, there's many ministers that he could have made you know, take the horse of uh, Mordechai and go through the streets. The fact that the Grand Vizier, the second most powerful man in, in the entire Persia, would, would go lead this guy is a debasement, is a degradation of the Grand Vizier. Remember, and the Grand Vizier has to maintain authority, respect. It's critical for a king, you see? So by having his Grand Vizier leading some guy up on the horse there, you see, who is basically a commoner, is a tremendous degradation to the Grand Vizier, you see. Which itself is incredible. 
And then, of course, we have the scene where Esther and Achashverosh and Haman, you know, and then Esther accuses Achashverosh uh, of Haman. Yes, so Yeshmi, there's somebody who wants to kill the Jews and all that, right? And of course, which is a really incredible, Haman is drunk, but he want, he realizes, he, he's looking at curtains in his own, you know, and, and so on. So he falls on top of Esther, which is the worst possible position to be in. Because the king had walked out fuming that uh, Esther had accused him of trying to kill the Jews, you know. And of course, Achishverosh walks in, and he can't believe what he sees, right? And he says what he said, uh, you want to take my house, you want to take my wife too, right? Uh, even that wasn't, uh, you know, what itself is miraculous. I mean, think about it, it's the worst possible thing to do at that time, right? And then all of a sudden, Chavayna, bless be Chavayna, says, yeah. And not only that, but he wants to hang Mordechai, right? And shh, hang him, you know? I mean, look at this series of events, it's beyond belief. That's why the Megillah really, if you think about it, really could never have happened. It just has too many events that really boggle the mind. Yet it happened. Why? Because God controls human events, not man. That's what we learn. The Rabbanisham can create miracle after miracle that doesn't stop. Because that's what he does. You see, when it comes to the salvation of the Jews, this always happens, always happens. Very important concept. So therefore, it, the Megillah itself is a very mysterious idea. Now, but that's not the only strange thing about the Megillah. Homer is a strange person. Well, he's the Grand Vizier. He's the second most powerful man in the kingdom. Very powerful, you see. And all of, all of a sudden, he's walking with whatever, his entourage, and Mordechai is there, Mordechai doesn't want to bow. Right? So all of a sudden he says to one of his guys, who's this guy? Why well, he doesn't want to bow in front of me? So he says he's a Yehudi. You see? So all of a sudden, more, uh, not Mordechai, Haman decides he's got to kill all the Jews. Now, what doesn't make sense is this. Okay, the guy didn't bow in front of you, right? So what, don't kill him, put him in prison. You see? So that's the first bizarre thing. The second bizarre thing, you want to kill him, it's one thing. Why do you want to kill the, the whole nation? You want to kill all the Jews because this man didn't bow? What, are you crazy? Not only that, it's not only that he's crazy, but you know, it, what's incredible is that the Jews were hard-working people. They contributed an enormous amount of cash to the kingdom. That that was the, you know, how could you kill hard-working loyal citizens that contribute tremendously to the up, up, upkeep of the kingdom? That doesn't make any sense at all. Yet that's what he decided. So the question is, why kill Mordechai? Why kill everybody? And not only that, the next question is, you know, is that uh, where it says there that um, uh, when they told him he was a Yehudi, that's what really got him thinking he's going to kill everybody. Why? What's this concept of Haman? Is he an anti-Semite? Is that the underlying reason? And not only that, why does the Megillah keep mentioning the Yichus of Haman? Because it keeps saying, Homon ben Hamdosa. It repeats it many times. It just say Homon, in the beginning it should uh, uh, say genealogy, whatever it was, and that's it. Why does it keep saying Homon Tzera Yehudim ben Hamdosa or Agogi and so on? Why this constant repetition of his lineage? And then what's really strange is what Homon says, Tachachvirsh, right? 
He's got to convince Achashverosh that there's a reason why he should kill all the Jews. So of course the first thing he offers is the money. Why? Because he was about to take out all that income, right? For the king's treasury. But then he says, let me tell you why you have to kill them. First of all, their, their religion is not like ours. They're separate from us. Their religion isn't like ours. You know, what do you need them for? You see. Now, why is that a bizarre statement? Because Achashverosh had 127 provinces. And guess what? Each one had their own religion, right? Their own culture, right? So Achashverosh probably said to him, are you crazy? I got 127 different countries. So what are you talking about the Jews? That they're separate, right? And they have their own religion. They're not like us. There's 127 countries that are not like us. So what kind of an, what kind of an argument is that? Strange. What was the argument of Haman? You see, that's the question. If you think that's strange, this is really strange. Who does Haman descend from? He descends from a nation called Amalek. Who is Amalek? What I'll say this. If not for the fact that the Torah said that Amalek attacked the Jews after they left Egypt, right? And before Matantura, they attacked the Jews and so on, you know? I would never believe that this story happened. Why? Because it's not reasonable that it happened. It doesn't make any sense. Why? Let's think about this. People think that, that Amalek, which is an ancient kingdom, the, uh, the Amalekites, people think that Amalek was what? Was atheistic. So they hated the Jews. Why? Because the Jews came out with monotheism, belief in God, out of Egypt, right? They came out of Egypt, and Amalek is atheistic, so they want to kill the Jews because the Jews believed in God. That's false. There was no such thing as atheism in those days. Every country was over the word of Zorah. Polytheism. Bill and Bola, they all had a void of Zorah. There was no such thing as atheism. atheism. Atheism is a modern sickness because of Darwin. Because once Darwin said that there's an alternative to understand certain fundamental ideas, right? Which is evolution. What do we need God for? You see, so never, you couldn't be an atheist. You couldn't be an atheist. Why? Because how do you explain the fact, one, what's the origin of life, and two, the diversification of species? How? You see? So you could be an atheist. Along comes Darwin, it gives his theory of evolution, and all of a sudden you can become an atheist. But in the old days, there was no such thing as atheism. Everybody believed in God, but polytheism. So the question is, why did Amalek want to kill the Jews? Hey, you believe in your gods, they believe in their God. What's your problem? That's the first thing. Second thing. <clears throat> Israel was not a military threat to Amalek. The Medrash says that they had to cross five borders to get to the Jews. Five borders? That means Israel is not a military threat to Amalek. So what are you going to war with them for? If they're not a military threat, there's only two reasons why nations basically war with other nations. One is for tribute, cash, right? Because like if they enslave the nation, then they get money, right? And the second thing is if they're under threat. 
You see, the Jews had no money. But, I mean, they had money because they left Egypt and so on. But they're not a military threat. And, and, and so why would Amalek threaten or try to destroy the Jews? There's no military threat here. And not only that, do you know what it costs to mount a war? Remember, they crossed five borders. And this was a wilderness. So it's not like they, they can kidnap farmers and take their food. It's a wilderness. There's nothing to take. Which means that they had to have a supply line through five countries. You see? What is that supposed to mean? How could you have a... You, the war in Afghanistan cost a billion... It cost the U.S. a billion dollars a day. Talk about expensive wars, right? A billion dollars a day, right? Because it's very expensive. You have to have thousands and thousands of troops. You gotta feed them. You gotta clothe them and house them. For what? You see, that makes sense. There's no rationale of why Hom of why Amalek would do that. You see, and not only that, you see, it's a suicide trip because the Jews just destroyed Egypt, which is the greatest country in the world. So you're gonna start up with these guys? Why? It's a suicide trip. It's basically what it is. You don't start it with a country that just wiped out the greatest country in the world, Egypt. And not only that, we know the Jews had two and a half million people when they came out of Egypt, right? Because they had 600,000 males above the age of 20. So if you count everybody below 20, and the women, and the, and the, and the children and all that, you know, and so on, you know? You're looking at two and a half, uh, two and a half million people. Because at least each family had at least four people. And we know they had six kids in one shop in Egypt. There were millions of Jews coming out of Egypt. That means in order for Amalek to try to destroy the Jews, they had to have an army of what, a hundred thousand guys? Do you know what it cost, that type of an army in those, kind of, in those days? It doesn't make any sense. You see, countries don't do this. And then of course the last question is, why does God hate them so much? You think they're the only anti-Semites around? You see? Yet God clearly hates them. I mean, if you, if you can talk about God hating, they're the guys. Because it's a mitzvah with just Pasha Zohar. There's a mitzvah of You can't even own their property because somebody may say, hey, that cow used to be belong to an Amaleki. So the Allah is you cannot own anything from Amalek. And there's a mitzvah that say to kill them. Why? You see? because they try to destroy the Jews. A lot of people try to kill the Jews. Wherein lies this tremendous animosity toward Amalek? Okay, a lot of questions, you see? And they're very powerful questions because in many ways they, they belie the logic. They don't make any sense, you see? We know they happen, obviously, because the Torah says they happen, you know? But how do we understand this? In other words, there's something going on here that we're missing. Somebody hasn't told us the whole story. You think about that, you know? Once you begin really thinking about it. But the truth is, there are profound understandings of what's going on. And that's the message that you have to understand about what Purim is about. <clears throat> In order to understand all of this, you need to understand something very fundamental about human nature. You see? All people, any human, when they're born, are incredibly insecure. Because an infinite, an infinite, an infant knows how vulnerable it, vulnerable it is. It all has to realize. At the beginning, it's born with what's called delusions of omnipotence. 
where you can think and then it's satisfied. And all of a sudden the infant realizes, hey, I, I can't do a thing for myself. I'm completely de dependent on my mother, right? For everything, right? Food, bathroom, you name it. I gotta, I gotta have this adult. So therefore, what, what, what the human mind begins to understand is I am completely helpless. That creates certain intuitive feelings about itself that it is incredibly insecure and inferior, you see? And therefore, man always strives for some sense where he can assert being. It's a very fundamental idea in psychology. Almost everything we do is nothing more than an expression that I am somebody. You don't realize how pervasive that is. Almost everything we do, and I, this is not the lecture for it, okay, is where we have to assert being. I'm somebody. I've always got to prove that I'm not a nobody. You see? Anyway, therefore, man must be, is thinking always of three things. Unconsciously, either a human being, man, which means women too, I'll leave people out, okay? A person only has three ideas that he's always thinking of unconsciously. A man either thinks he's God, he wants to be God, or he wants to overthrow God. It's one of those three, you see? Because in that way, he can somehow gain a certain sense of self, which he lacks, which is critical for him to do. Where do we see this? Well, the Mauritian was the first man, right? What was the first concern that he had? Hey, I want to be God. So that's what the Nochash said to, to Adam. Kim, you could be God. Remember that? We told that to Chava, and then Chava carried on that argument to Adam. In other words, hey, you want to be tempted? You've got to eat from the tree. Why? Okay, that's what the Nochash said. Rashi says this, the Medrash. Where the Nochash said, the snake said to Adam, uh, to Chava, and then Adam, and so on, you know. You see that tree that God said you can't eat from? Guess what? God ate from that tree, and that's how he became God. Which of course is a lie. It was Lashon Hara and Rechilas and Moitzis Shema in one shot, without getting into all that, right? Uh, and w why was that tempting? Because they want to be God. Adam and Chava want to be God. Or why eat? You see. Uh, so that was the first. That's the flaw that the Nochash realized that man has. They want to be God. Why? Obviously, to remove the sense of vulnerability. Because if I am God, guess what? I'm everything. That's the greatest cure for inferiority, is to be God. Second, overthrow God. Who wanted to overthrow God? Right? The Tower of Babel, the Mikdal Bava. Can you imagine a whole society building some kind of structure to war with God? <coughs> it's like the whole, the whole progression of society became that, to war with God. They want to overthrow God. Because if they do that, then they can prove themselves that there's somebody because we killed God. That's the whole point of it, you see? That's the second concept. And the third concept is people think they're God. Moshe comes in front of Parai, right? Pharaoh, Parai thought he's a God. All the Pharaohs thought they were God. You see, so man has this illness. You see, either he wants to be God, he thinks he is God, right? Uh, or he wants to overthrow God. It's one of the three. Although it is so deeply unconscious, and without getting into it, you don't realize that there are many acts that we do that in some way express this, you see, whatever. In any case, so the question is how did man solve the problem? How? What's the problem? Because man is in a dilemma. What's the dilemma? People, 
They know there's a God. If you are religious in any way, I don't even care, I don't care if you're polytheistic, you believe in many gods, but in the end, mankind in those days certainly was, they all believe in God. But here's the problem. If I believe in God on one side, right, and, and I know I'm not God, right, then my problem is that I want to have my cake and eat it too. You see, I want to be able to do what I want to do. I don't want a boss. The most difficult for, thing for a person is to have a boss. Nobody wants an authority over themselves because that's all part of the desire, right? I got to prove I'm somebody and if I have an authority over me, <coughs> then I'm nobody. That's why man hates authority, always, and so on. In any case, so therefore the problem is, I believe in God, right? But I want to do what I want to do. How do I, how do the two come together? You see, man has that problem. How do they solve it? Now here's a remarkable idea. Mankind solved the problem in nine different, actually ten different ways. And the solution to the problem is called religion. You have to understand what's going on here. It's brilliant. Man solved the dilemma through religion because he tailor-made the religion to enable him to do whatever he wants at the same time believing in God. Let's see how it works. I'm going to give you ten different religions. And this is the way he did it. And then you'll understand what Judaism is and who Homer really is. Okay, first solution, atheism. Well, they don't believe in God. You see? So that's a simple solution. I don't believe in him, so I can do whatever I want. Of course, that position is ridiculous because it's impossible to be an atheist because anybody, the greatest proof of the existence of a supreme being is called the complexity of the universe. The universe and the human body, there's 100 million species. How in the world did that happen? And the species that we look at are beyond belief in terms of their ability to survive. Chance? Chance can never explain 100 million species. That's the greatest proof of the existence of a supreme being. The complexity of the universe that could never come through chance. And I don't want to get into all of that. Like the human brain itself has 100 billion neurons. All so perfectly arranged that you can actually think, you can remember. Nobody knows what these things are basically, let alone how did the human brain come into existence. And of course the human body has 100 trillion cells, each one functioning. Uh, it's just astounding what just the human body is and so on. Anyway, so you can't be an atheist, but people are atheists. Why? Because, hey, don't tell me what to do. That's the only reason why a person is an atheist, you know? Okay, but for those people who are a little more honest, they're not atheists. What are they? They are agnostics. You know, what's agnosticism? You know, I don't know. Maybe there's a God. Maybe there isn't a God. You see? And until you prove it to me, I'll do what I want. You see? These guys live in uncertainty. You see? And that enables them to do whatever they want. You know, they don't deny the existence of God. But hey, unless you prove it to me, just do what I want. So that's a second strategy to avoid God. <clears throat> Third strategy, Aristotle. Aristotle believed in a God, but he said that God has nothing to do with the universe, with man. Wow, isn't that convenient? Well, there's a God, right? But he has nothing to do with us. Hey, we're free, we do whatever we want. So that's a third strategy. Where they believe in God, you can do whatever you want. Fourth strategy where there is a God, but he's limited. 
God is actually limited. You see, isn't that what Bilaam believed? When God appeared to Bilaam, he said to him, who are those guys outside? So Bilaam said to him, hmm, that's very interesting. That means God doesn't know everything, right? He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. If he doesn't know everything, hey, I can pull off some of my own stuff on the side. He won't know anyway. You see? So it enables a person to do whatever he wants. And since God doesn't know everything, hey, I can get away and do whatever I want. You see? So that's the concept of limitation of God. You see? And there are people who wrote terrible things about, uh, about the concept that God is limited. He doesn't know everything. He can't do everything. Like somebody wrote a whole book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And it was incredible apicosis what he wrote. That really God is good, but never he can't do everything. He's not omnipotent. So he cannot stop people from suffering, even though they don't deserve it. I mean, you can't believe the meanness of this guy. But anyway, I don't want to get into that book, but there are people who believe that God is limited. Either he's not everywhere, he doesn't know everything, and he's not all-powerful, you see? Fifth strategy. Okay, it's true that, you know, uh, that, you know even if God does know everything, but there are two gods, you see? Zoroastrianism. There's a god of good, and there's a god of evil. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become a chassid of the god of evil, right? And believe me, if the god of evil, then I can do whatever I want. You see? So by inventing two gods, one of good and evil, you could do whatever you want. That's the whole religion of Persia. Zoroastrianism. That's number five. Number six, polytheism. <coughs> Why? Greeks had this, like, 50 gods, you know? So imagine what the guy does. He says, you know, between 50 gods, everybody's got a different shita, an opinion. So I'm going to pick all the opinions of the different gods that allow me to do whatever I want. You see? Wow. What a strategy. So polytheism is an incredible way to be able to do whatever you want. You see? So that's another incredible strategy uh, that, that people pick and so on. Then there's number seven, where they actually, whatever you want to do, all the evil you want to do, you actually say that God does it also. If you look at the Greek pantheon of gods, right? What did they used to do? They used to steal and lie and rape. They did everything. So, you know, there's a mitzvah in the Torah where it says, Lihidamus Bedrochov, right? You got to imitate his ways. Boy, do they imitate his ways. Because what they did is they invested in God exactly what they want to do. Brilliant. It's a brilliant idea. And the Greeks did it and the Romans did it. You see? Number eight. Where a guy says, look, I, you know, I can't do that to God. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make the avoider of God, worshipping him, immoral. My religion says I have to kill people. You know how many religions say that? That I have to kill? There was a whole sect in India. They're called the thuggies, whatever these guys call themselves, you know. They worshipped Kali, I don't get into that, the whole business, you know. They had to kill people. It was part of the Avaita, you see. So what they simply did is they made the evil that they want to do, the zimo, the immorality, you know, and all that kind of, and the murders and whatever, they actually made that as part of the divine service. You ever notice the ancient religions, all of them had a, a tremendous amount of sexual uh, things as part of the avoida, as part of the temple service. Why? Because that they made that the avoida. And the classic is Balpur. You know, what they did, they used to, you know, relieve themselves in front of their God. 
I mean, do you imagine this is a way to serve God? Yeah, for whatever, whatever that connotated. Uh, this is what people do, you see. Then there's the next strategy. And that is that God changes mind. He changes mind. God realized that the Torah is too difficult. So what he said is, hey, just believe in the guy. Christianity is that type of religion. Where they believe replacement theology, where God changes mind. You see, forget about the Torah. It's all about the New Testament. You see, forget about the Jews. They've been replaced by the Catholics. They believe that they are based Israel. You see, what does that mean? God changes mind, right? And what they did is they, they enormously reduced the amount of avoido that you need. You see, it's incredible. Then the last one I hold as the most brilliant of all, strategy. You notice how each one of these things is nothing more than another belief system. How to eat, have your, have your cake and eat it too. The last one is where you don't need God to forgive you, man will forgive you. You see, you can actually go to a priest and you confess and he will forgive you. You see, he has the power of kapora. Now guess what? All men can be bribed. <clears throat> so what you do is you write out a check to his favorite charity, which of course is him. Right? And you write out a check, you know, and he forgives you, you know? And not only that, he says, you know, not only that, not only I forgive you for what you did, <clears throat> but if you double the check, I'll forgive you for what you will do. <laughs> See, the, the, that, that, that's a real, that's called a sale. We have a sale going on now, right? Two for the price of one. Not only I forgive you what you did, but guess what? Retroactive, you can go out and steal another horse, right? And you're automatically forgiven, Lema Freya. I mean, and they did that. The Catholic Church was filled with indulgences. In fact, that's why Luther, that's one of the things he hung up on the church, that what kind of business is this? Why? Because once man can forgive, everybody can be bribed. And that was a brilliant way of doing whatever you want and just paying the pay by check. You know, I, I, it's too bad. Imagine if they would have taken credit cards in those days. It'd be absolutely incredible. You know? In any case, what we see is something very interesting. Religions basically must conform to a certain strategy. They need to neutralize God or else man has no exit. See, man needs an exit. Why? Because I have to be able to do what I want. I don't want a boss over me. Don't tell me what to do. Oh, this is fundamental to the nature of man. And every religion has found a way to do that. And I've just outlined 10 different strategies, which are really just 10 different belief systems, until you get to the 11th, Judaism. Why did they want to kill Avraham Avinu? What's the problem here? You know, everybody believes in God. It was like Avram. Avram said, okay, you know, I don't believe in your deities, you know. But why did they want to kill Avram Avinu? Because Avram Avinu was an unbelievably uh, dangerous person. Because Avram Avinu said, hey, first of all, there's only one God, not many. So that itself was bad because, you mean, polytheism is a great way of doing whatever I want. You're telling me there's one God? Bad news. Because I have to deal with one God. But here's what he did, which was a kicker. He said that this God is moral, righteous, virtuous. You see. And not only that, he doesn't take any bribes. You see, what? You're not allowing me an exit. That's the most dangerous 
thing in the world. Not for man to have an exit, therefore they had to kill him. It's one thing to believe in God, but to believe in a God that doesn't allow what's called a little something on the side is too dangerous. That's why they hated Avraham Avinu. And the truth is, that's why, if you really begin to think about it, that's why, which we will see, there's anti-Semitism. You know one thing? People don't hate Jews. That's not the problem. People hate God. That's the problem. And since the Jew represents God, they hate him, because he carries the message. And that's what the Chazal mean. Chazal say an incredible thing. They say, why is how Mount Sinai, how Sinai, called Sinai? Ah, so the Chazal say, because from there, Sinai, hatred, entered the world. So the question is, what? Why would hatred enter the world with such an incredible gift of God communicating you know, laws to man? And the answer is because Sinai provided no exit. They never forgave God and they never forgave the Jews, as we will see. Uh, this is a very important concept. Man needs an exit. Every religion provides an exit. What doesn't provide an exit is, is Judaism. Judaism, there's one God, right? He's omniscient, right? He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent, all-present, right? Omnipotent, all-powerful. Not only that, he is righteous, moral, ethical, just, virtuous. But not only that, guess what? He's checking you out. You are accountable to him. You know, how do you stand in front of a God like that? He never forgets. You can't bribe him. You see, you're finished. That's why Judaism is the most dangerous man, in the, the most dangerous religion of all. And the Goyim have never forgiven the Jews because they hate the Jews, because they, we carry the message of God. It's a very important concept. You see, now that we understand this, we now understand the, the Amalek. Why did Amalek hate the Jews? What is this? Like I brought all these questions down. And the answer is the same reason why they threw Avraham Avinu in the picture. <coughs> you can't do this to mankind. You can't give them a belief without an exit, as they say, or without, an, uh, without what's called a loophole, you see? <clears throat> but the interesting thing about Amalek, even though they, it was a suicide trip, it cost them a fortune. You see, it's because Amalek decided to be Moise Nefesh. They knew they were going to get killed. They knew that. They're not stupid, you see. And it cost them a fortune. But they realized that it's not so much we're against the religion of the Jews. But the Jews have not provided us a loophole. Their religion doesn't give us an exit. We're finished. So they said, it's better we die and they die, right, than they promote that type of a belief system. You see, and that's why God hates them. Why? It's one thing you're an atheist. Okay, God can live with your atheism. Why? Because eventually, you know, there was this, uh, I forgot his name, there was a skeptic, there was a professor in England. He was a skeptic, which means he didn't believe in God, you know, and he preached it. He was a, a college professor, and he gave, you know, he was famous, he was your doer. He was famous for a guy that not only didn't believe in God, but he used to teach atheism, you know? And then I read an article, you know, where a guy was 83 years old, and I think he was sick. 
So he changed his mind. There's a God. Imagine a guy's an atheist, right? His whole life. Who knows how many people he convinced that there's no God. He changed his mind. Why? Because he said, because the universe is just too complex to have developed by chance. He woke up. So God says, listen, you're an atheist. I can live with that. Because someday you're going to wake up and realize it just can't be this way. But to believe in God and make a mockery of God is a different story. Make a choizik. In other words, you believe in me, yet you make a choizik by having a loophole where you do what you want, right? That's a mockery. You see, that God cannot tolerate. You see, to believe in God, yet do what you want, uh, and to come up with different lame reasons and so on, uh, that is a complete mockery of God. Because it's not, you can't even wake up with that. Because at least if you're an atheist, you can wake up and say, I'm wrong. But if you have a religion which, which makes a chizik of God, his whole terror, his whole system of morality is the worst thing of all. And that's why God says, you need to kill these guys. You notice what it says? Which is interesting, how the Torah actually tells him. Because when God says to kill Amalek, he says, because the hand of Amalek, our case caught, is on the throne of God. It doesn't say that Amalek was against God, belief in God, but he was against the sovereignty of God, the rule of God, you see? And that's what Amalek is. He denied the absolute sovereignty, and sovereignty means his ability to rule over you because they made a mockery of the whole religion. You see, that's, that's much what the Pesach says. Ki yod case call. It doesn't say ki yod, ki call. But he's against the throne of God, and the throne, of course, is the symbol of sovereignty. You see? And not only that, the word Amalek, Aleph, Ayin, Mem, Lamed, Kuf, is Rosh Tevis, Ul Malchus Kiblu. The kingdom of God they never accepted. You see? It doesn't say that they never accepted God. They never accepted his kingdom which is the mitzvahs, because they have a loophole. You know, they can do whatever they want because they have neutralized God. You see, that's the problem with Amalek, you see. Now that we understand, so what they, what, what Amalek ultimately did is that, no, no, it's not that we follow the dictates of God. God follows the dictates of man. That's basically, we fashion God in our image. Not that we're in his image, he's in our image. He will do what we tell him to do. And that's all the strategies, see? And now we understand Haman very well. What, what, what Haman, and you understand how, what, what's really going on with Haman. Um, Haman was the Grand Vizier, right? All of a sudden he sees this guy Mordechai, right? And Mordechai doesn't bow. So Haman said to himself, that doesn't make sense, why? Because imagine if President Trump, right, or a king passed you, what would you do? It's in your benefit to bow. Because he'll like you, maybe he'll do you favors, right? Right? It, it's, anybody wants to get to know a politician, especially a high-ranked politician, <coughs> right? So he said to himself, it doesn't make sense. Why is Mordechai bound to me? He's antagonizing me. Why? Because it must, he must believe that he can't have a loophole in God, right? That he must obey the dictates of God, and God says you can't bow to a man. Therefore, these guys still practice Judaism. You see, and Judaism is the old religion that my ancestors tried to wipe out. Uh, that's why he said, he asked the guy, who's this guy? Yehudi, he's a Jew. Jew? You mean this religion where there's no loophole, exit to get out, where they have to believe in God and, and, and serve God and not you know, 
twist God and do what they want to do, which would have meant that he should bow, they still exist, wipe them out. So what Haman really was doing, he wasn't killing Mordechai for Mordechai. He was carrying on the tradition of his ancestors. That's why the Megillah keeps repeating, Haman ben Hamdosa, the Yichos. Why does it keep repeating the lineage of Haman? To tell you that it wasn't only Haman's hatred. What he really was saying, I have to carry out the mitzvah of my ancestors that are Molek. I will carry on their tradition. I'm going to finish their job. Therefore, the Megillah is telling you what Haman really wants to do is finish the job of Amalek, you see. And that's why he keeps stressing his lineage to tell you that that's really what he wants to do, you see. And then what happens? He comes over to Ahasuerus and he says, there's a nation, they, 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 they're separate, right? They do what they want. They're alone, they have their own religion. What are you talking about? They got 127 countries. Everybody's got their own religion. Like it says in the Megillah, Kiksovim, Lushinim. They all have their own languages, their own traditions. So what's this that you're telling about the Jews? But here's what Haman said. He said, wait a minute, every religion got a loophole. No problem. We got loopholes, they got loopholes. Jews have no loopholes. They're the most dangerous people on earth. You see, we got to kill them. And therefore, Ahasuer says, you're right. Got to kill him. That type of a religion cannot exist where there's no loophole, there's no exit that we can't do. You see, it's a very important concept. Uh, so it comes out that even if you believe in God, you're still not safe. It depends. Are you trying to compromise God, which is really what Amalek was trying to do? You see. Now you may ask yourself, wait a minute. Uh, what does that have to do with today? See, I mean, we live in a modern society, right? Can, uh, is it possible that the concept of Amalek exists today? And the answer is, where does it exist today? Let me show you how. One of the greatest examples of Amalek was Hitler, Do you know why Hitler hated the Jews? I mean, whatever his personal reasons. But you know what he writes in Mein Kampf in 1923? He says why he hated the Jews. Listen to this. Hitler says you need to get rid of every Jew. Why? Because they have given us a conscience. Mm -hmm. They have made us wimps. What does that sound like? We can't move. We can't do what we want. We've got to, they, they made us feel guilty about everything we do. Because when we want to have our own benefit, we're always feeling guilty. I see, because there's no loophole in Judaism. He actually says that. What does that sound like? Amalek. In fact, Hitler was a Gilgal of Amalek. I don't know if you know the, the, uh, the code. The ten ministers of, of Hitler were the ten sons. And even Goebbels was a Gilgal of the daughter of Haman, who threw herself over the balcony because she threw the garbage on uh, who she thought was Mordechai, was really her father, right? So she's a girl, right? But the, the eleventh minister was Goebbels, and he was a cross-dresser. Interesting. Yeah. There's a whole cone to this, where you see that, you know. <clears throat> but the truth is, Hitler and his ministers are the reincarnation of Haman and his 12 sons and his daughter, and so on, you know. And that was Hitler's shita. His shita is, is Amalek. That the Jew says, the Jews have made us wimps. They've given us a conscience. There's no out. You see, if I had an out, believe me, I wouldn't feel guilty. Why do I feel guilty? I have an out. 
have a loophole. In fact, the loophole is where God does the same thing I want to do. These are loopholes. You see, I don't feel guilty because of this. You see, uh, but he actually writes they must be destroyed. And what's incredible, right, is that not only is that the view of Amole, you see, but what was the major characteristic of Amole, which God said must be destroyed? The main characteristic of Amole is he was willing to give up his life for that shita. Did Hitler give up his life? There's a book called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Be a thick book. I actually read this when I was in yeshiva. It's about a thousand pages by William Shira. Anyway, he writes very interesting. He says that at the end of the war in 45 or 44, he says that the generals came over to Hitler and they said, we are losing the war. And they were. And they, they were losing the war. So Hitler said to the generals, why are we losing the war? I mean, the Wehrmacht, the Luftwaffe, these are the most powerful. The German army was the most powerful army in the world. If not for the fact that God wanted Germany to lose, right? America would be speaking German, and all the Jews would be dead. Yeah, that incredible air force, that incredible army. I mean, this is talking German efficiency. You know, they used to come in with the blitzkrieg, blitzkrieg, and all that stuff. Just wiped out everything. You know, if not for the stupid mistakes, they're not stupid. The divinely inspired mistakes that Hitler made. Russia was one where he refused to let the, uh, if you know all the mistakes the guy made. And not only that, he was bombing England, the, uh, the Royal Air Force. He was destroying England, uh, the whole uh, Air Force. Uh, and what he wanted to do was turn back. So the general said, are you crazy? Just keep it up for another two weeks and you've wiped out the Air Force of England. And that's the end of Britain. She said, no. I'm not going to do it. He turned around the whole Air Force and went toward the other side, you know, the eastern side and so on. And because of that, the RAF, Royal Air Force, was able to regenerate. It's a miracle. It's a reversion did that. It's all, it's all divine. There are many miracles in the war, which is beyond belief, if you really read the miracles of World War II. Uh, but that's the only reason why Germany lost, you see. But when the generals came to Hitler, they said, they said to the guy, we're losing. He says, why? He says, why? Because in order to win the war, you need troops. What's the problem? Because the troops that should be in the front can't get to the front because you're using all the railroad cars to ship the Jews to the concentration camps. He actually told them that. The Shira writes this, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so they told him, well, maybe you cut it out and then it's have come on your railroad cars. What did Hitler say then? Get lost which is astounding, because here's the man who dreamed, right, that the Third Reich would be a thousand years. Remember the Third Reich, the thousand years? Yet he was willing to give all of it up. He knew they were losing. And he was willing to give it all up to destroy the Jews. Not one Jew has to live, even though Germany is collapsing. What is that? That's incredible treason. That is real treason to Germany. The Germans have no concept of what treason is. You see, it's the ultimate betrayal of Germany. You see, how could you put the destruction of a people ahead of, of the Third Reich? You see, that's suicide. Commit suicide. That's it was a German collective suicide. So who does that sound like? That's Amalek, literally. But it's not just them, you see. Uh, and this is what you begin to see, you know. Reformed. Conservative, Reconstruction. You notice what they do? They believe in God, but what are they trying to do? Compromise God, aren't they? 
They're trying to change. They need loopholes in the religion. That's really what they do. Well, you don't have to have this. We change the davening, right? And of course, you can write on Shabbos because, of course, you got to get the shul. So what's the problem of writing? You know, excuse me. You're dictating to God how to run? That's big. It, 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 it's fascinating to see that the whole concept of, or the, the philosophy of the reformed conservative movement and reconstructionist, in many ways, is an Amalekite philosophy. I hate to say that because they're Jews, you know, and they are Jews, there's no question about that. But they are so lost in their need to compromise God, they're doing exactly what all the other religions have done. Except now it's not called other religions, it's called reformed conservative reconstructionist Judaism. But that's what they're doing. Are they deciding which mitzvahs apply and which mitzvahs don't apply? Uh, you see, and that in, in, what they're simply doing is, is limiting Judaism. Same concept. So we can do whatever we want. Don't tell me I can't ride on Shabbos. Well, I can't go into a restaurant and eat trade. You know, all this is permitted today. We are modern. That's exactly the concept of what they're doing. They are compromising God. And that is an Amalekite philosophy which all the nations of the world have done, except the Jews, you see. And that's why it's an incredible, what is happening then is just, it's, it's a modern day event, phenomenon. That's really what's happening, you see. Where do you see, you know, it says in the Torah, which you begin to realize, it says many times, the Rebbe gives Moshe Rabbeinu a commandment, right? And then it says, Moshe did it, Kasha Tzivu Hashem is Moshe as God commanded Moshe. Everyone why it says that? Moshe did exactly what God commanded him. Why does he always say that? Because the Bonshim is saying, that's the opposite of Amalek. He did what I said. He didn't try to compromise me, or add whatever he thinks, you know, or try to modernize some of the mitzvahs. No, exactly what I said, that's what he did. That's the religion of Judaism. So that's why he keeps saying, you see, and that's what, why the Russian gives such shvach to Moshe. You know, whatever I said, he does. And that's why it said by him, by Aaron Akoyim, you know, and the Jews, they did exactly as Moshe commanded, which is the great, which was one of the greatest shvach compliments you can pay the Jews. You see, and that's what God is saying. He didn't think about how to get out of this, how to change it, how to modernize it. How to make it easy for them. No, they did exactly what I said. You see? And that's a tremendous shvach that God says. And that's in the Torah, you see. <clears throat> what do we realize from all this? Something which is very important today, because it goes on today, and it goes on all the time. Remember, <clears throat> the reason for anti-Semitism isn't because they hate Jews, per se, although there is a hatred of Jews which stems from jealousy. That is true. But the reason why they hate Jews will never forgive you for receiving the Torah and spreading that throughout the world. That's the most painful thing about the God. They won't admit that. But in the end, they, 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 they're Avodim. We're all Avodim. That's why God says, you're my servants. No man wants to be a servant. Nobody. Because we need to feel good about ourselves. We need to assert ourselves. We need to feel that we're somebody. You see, and that's why, but we have a problem. It's called the dilemma. But we believe in God. So now how are we going to do what we do? Well, very simple. You know, we will nullify, neutralize 
or maybe neuter is a better word, you know, God. So we can do whatever we want. <clears throat> this, in many ways, is a very important concept of Purim. Purim is about humble. <coughs> you see? It's about Amore. You see? It is the overthrow of that kind of concept that, that Homan expressed as, as part of the entire Amalekite philosophy. <clears throat> you see? And that's a very important concept of Purim. The, um, uh, the, uh, the, the real commitment and spirituality that a Jew has to have. A Jew has to worship the Rabbana Shalom, no matter what. You can't dream up ways of exiting. Uh, it's either this or nothing. I shouldn't say nothing, but uh, this is very important. That's a very important concept of, of, of Purim. In terms of what I started this year, in terms of the miracles, that's, by the way, we take a look at the fact of all the miracles, which, of course, how in the world did they happen? <clears throat> That's the whole concept of the costume. Because a costume is nothing more than I appear one way, but I am really not the way I appear. I am, I am underneath the costume. <clears throat> because Purim has so many miracles, what is clear is that behind the costume of nature is God. That's why we wear costumes, by the way. You see, that's a very important concept, that God is behind everything, you see. And with Purim, it becomes very obvious that he's behind. And that's why, to commemorate, or rather to express that idea, we wear costumes. It's not because we want to Im imitate Halloween. No. <laughs> ah, you see, some people have that idea, right? Uh, it's because <clears throat> we realize that behind everything, and by the way, that's why the, the name of God is not in any way mentioned in the Megillah, which people point out and say, that's incredible. How could you have a, a holy writing <coughs> without God being mentioned? And the answer is, that's why the Megillah is a costume. God is behind the Megillah, because none of this could have taken place if, if there isn't God. It's just, it's just incredible events. See, that's a very important idea, that everything is run by God ultimately. You see, and that's the concept of costume. Another idea which is very important about Purim, uh, you see, which we see in the end, you see. The Gematria, it says, Boruch Mordechai, Oror Homan. Blessed is Mordechai, Oror Homan, right? It, it says that you have to get drunk, right? Where you do not know the difference between blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Homan. I can imagine how drunk you gotta be. You know what I'm saying? But the question is, what is this? You know, what kind of mitzvah is that? To get so drunk or to become so unaware uh, that you don't know the difference between blessed Mordechai and curses Haman? Why would this be a mitzvah for him? You know? And it's not because it's a sales pitch for wine. That's not what it is. You see? They didn't invent this mitzvah. The question is, why is this mitzvah? And there's a profound understanding, which is also very important. Uh, to us, there is a hero called Mordechai, right? And there's a villain called Haman, right? He tried to save the Jews, and Haman tried to destroy the Jews. To us, villainy and heroism is distinct. <coughs> but the truth is, to God, there is no such thing as a hero and a villain. Why? <clears throat> because 
Everybody must do what God wants. Whether you are a tzaddik or Russia, the divine agenda must be fulfilled. And it is irrelevant what you want to do. However, you are allowed the choice. If you contribute to the agenda of God, tikkun, then you get rewarded. If you contribute to the, try to obstruct that agenda, even though you can't, you get punished. But in the end, think about that. The agenda, the divine agenda of God must get fulfilled. You see? Therefore, you have to reach a point of being that drunk or whatever, where there is no difference. Because to you there's a difference, but to God there is no difference. Both do the will of God, which is incredible. Every Russia does the will of God. In fact, if it's not part of the agenda of God, he cannot succeed. You see? And that's why we get drunk. You see? So therefore comes out that Haman. Think about that. Haman did the will of God. Why? In fact, I can imagine Haman is up there screaming, I get reward. I should get reward for this. What did he did? What did he do? Because because the Haman wanted to kill the Jews, he actually contributed to all the Jews doing tshuva. Think about that. They wouldn't have done this kind of tshuva without that threat by Haman, right? So he can walk up in front of God and say, hey, I caused them to do tshuva. Of course I did it, but I wanted to kill them. So, you know, uh, so God says to him, look, of course, because I put you there to make sure that they do tshuva. But since your mental state, your mindset was to kill them, I'm not going to reward you. Although you should know he did reward them, because generations later, somebody's actually a descendant of, Amar, of, of Haman. You're one of the Tanoim. I'm not sure if it was Ramea. Uh, it was actually one of the descendants, and that means Haman gets schar. You should know. If any of your descendants become great, you collect. Because in some way that's attributed to you, even though you're so far up the ladder. You see? Uh, so in a certain sense, he was rewarded, you know? But what we see is an incredible thing. That Haman is a, is a shliach of God. There is no difference to God between blessed Mordechai and curses Haman. Because Haman really, to us, he's cursed. But the God is blessed because he's carrying out the divine agenda. See, that's why there's a mitzvah that you have to become so intoxicated where there is no difference between the two. It's an interesting concept, you see. And that's why the gematria of Baruch Mordechai and Orahoma is exactly the same. The, the, how much? 502. 502? Yeah. Thank you. That's it. The gematria is the same, which is incredible. The gematria of Baruch Mordechai is 502. And the gematria of Orohomom is 502. That's astounding. Yes? They're both the same gematria. Which means what? That they are really the same type of message. You see, that they're both agents of God. Except to us, there's a villain and there's a hero. To God, they're all my messengers. Except the question is, can they collect? That's the only difference between the two. Uh, that's a very important lesson. What that tells us is that Everything is run by God, literally. And if you see evil succeed, it's because it's part of the divine plan. That's why. But God is behind it. And to show you what that means, <clears throat> which is another thing that Shara brings out, do you know how many attempts there was to kill Hitler? It's incredible. There's so many people that wanted this guy dead. <clears throat> the classic case is where somebody put a bomb, there was this huge desk, and Hitler attended a meeting. 
you know. And somebody put a bomb, you know, there was a big desk and it had really strong legs. But he took a, a, a suitcase, not a suitcase, a, a, a suitcase, yeah. Uh, briefcase, yeah. There was a bomb in it and he put it on the side that Hitler would sit, right? And of course, had that gone off, it would have killed the guy instantly, right? So what happened was, somebody uh, saw that and it was in the way, so he took the suitcase and put it on the other side of the leg. And because he did that, Hitler was saved. Now wait a minute, that's a miracle. Uh, what does that mean? That was a miracle that God saved Hitler's life. And I'll tell you another incredible story about Hitler. When Hitler was in World War I, all right, he was part of the, the army of Germany in World War I, you know? So one night, he had a dream. He dreamt that his whole barrack was going to be blown up. And he woke up in the, in the middle of the night. I mean, it's incredible. He dreamt that his barracks were going to be blown up. You know, it was in barracks with other soldiers. You know, he woke up and the dream was frightening. It was real. So he didn't know what to do. So he got up and he ran outside. And five minutes later, a bomb hit that barrack and killed everybody. Uh, Hitler was like, like, like a centimeter away from dying. There were so many attempts at his life. Who saved him? God. Obviously. But why? Why would God save Hitler? Clearly. And again, because God uses Rishon. Now, without getting into why the Holocaust happened, he was part of the agenda. But why save Hitler? He killed the guy, put somebody else. Because it's very hard to find a man that is so evil. You don't realize. You know, there are people that are evil, they're bad people, you know? But it's very hard to find a guy that excels in evil. You see? It's very hard. He's at what's called the Yikamatsius. You know what I'm saying? So that's why God said, listen, I need to, whatever, without getting into why the Holocaust, I need the Holocaust to happen, because obviously it's part of the divine agenda, without getting into that, and so on, you know? But I need a guy that's ruthless, that is utterly axorious, you see? Very few people like that. You know, people do bad, but they're not this. You know, they don't take people and put them in the crematorium, then they use their ashes, right? Then they use the, the fats for soap and the skin for leather goods. I mean, what, and then, uh, like, come on. I mean, what, what is this? It's like every part of the Jew was used for some type of a product, a commercial product, you see? You don't find people like that. The bestiality and the brutality and the cruelty of Germans is beyond belief, you know? In any case, so therefore God needed Hitler. It was very hard to find the men that had the qualities, the credentials of that type of evil. Sounds bizarre, but that's what it is. That's why God saved Hitler numerous times. Which is incredible, you see. Same idea. In the end, every person must conform to the agenda of God. And everything that happens to a person is part of the divine agenda. However, it depends. If you're part of the plan and you contribute to the plan, you're rewarded. If you're not part of the plan and you try to obstruct it, it'll happen anyway. But, of course, you'll get punished. That's the lesson, in many ways, of the concept of Purim of the concept of Adil Yoda, you see. So many of the mitzvahs that we do, I haven't gone through all of them, but the mitzvahs we do is some type of reflection of a tremendous message that we have to absorb and take with us and so on. Uh, so I've mentioned a couple of messages. One is don't compromise God. The greatness of Judaism is that we do exactly what God wants.
Kashen Sivo Hashem is Moshe. Another one is that miracles are just another expression of how God runs the world. And He does it all, you see. And the third idea, like I said, is that there are, to God, everybody is equal in the sense of they all must conform to the gender. Nobody can deviate. The only thing is, will you be rewarded or not, and so on. Uh, those are three fundamental ideas of Purim, you see. So when we read the Megillah, that's what we think about. Who Haman was, what he represented, what Amalek represents, you see. The fact that the whole Megillah, which doesn't have the name of God, essentially is God. But the Megillah is his costume, because he's behind the Megillah. And the third idea is that the agenda of God must be fulfilled. No matter if you're wicked or evil, the real question is will you be able to collect for what you did? You see, uh, this is part of the ruchnius of Purim. And therefore, Purim is a very great day. I mean, essentially, there's other things that happen, which is the essential idea, other essential ideas of Purim and so on. Uh, but, uh, so therefore, when we read the Megillah, we hear the Megillah, we do the mitzvahs, it's very important to remember that an event just doesn't happen, you see. Uh, it, it, uh, it is a, um, it's a divine event that had to happen so the Jews should do tshuva. By the way, had the, the, the tshuva that the Jews did in Purim was so great that the Mashiach should have come. It's a messianic opportunity. And who would have been the Mashiach? Ezra. Ezra was a kohen, and it's Mashiach ben Yosef. Like that's what the Torah, what the Chazal say, that the Torah could have been given through Ezra. Roy Shetinos and Torah through Ezra. What? That means he was as great as Moshe. If the Torah could be given, that means he could have had the greatest form of prophecy, which essentially means he was worthy to be like Moshe Rabbeinu. Because <coughs> he was the Mashiach. Almost. Why wasn't he the Mashiach? Because the Jews didn't come back with him to Eretz Israel. That's why. Only 70,000 Jews came back. The overwhelming majority of Jews remained in Babylon. And therefore, in those days, the Mashiach would only come through schus, merit, not because it's the end time, you see? And therefore, Purim was a time that could have been a messianic opportunity to be redeemed, but it wasn't. And, it's, and obviously, it's not the only time and so on, you know? And I want to leave you one more idea because it's an incredible thing. <clears throat> Somebody once was speaking to Rav uh, Mechel uh, Dov Weissmantel, famous, Knight Rosh Hashiva. Okay, and he was a brilliant mathematician, brilliant guy. So, so he once said to somebody visiting him, says, I can show you an incredible code. It's a remarkable code. I was the greatest code ever written. He says, What? He says, If you take a look at the Torah, Okay, and you look at the first uh, first time you encounter the word Aleph. Voracious, Bora, is the third letter of the Torah. Okay, and you count from that letter, Aleph, the exact amount of letters in the Megillah. It comes out to, I think, 10,000. 12,100. I think it's 12,192. Whatever it is, if you count the amount of letters in the Megillah, Right? Which uh, I think is 12,000 or something like that. Let's assume it's 12,192, right? If you'll come to the, that, the next letter when you count that, okay, is a Samach. 
if you count another 12,192, which is the exact amount of letters in the Megillah, you will come to a tough. And if you count another 12,192, which is the letters of the Megillah, you'll come to a reish. Aleph Samach test uh, tough reish is Esther, which is astounding. Why? Uh, because the one who wrote the Torah had to know 800 years later that there would be an Esther, right? And he would have to know that there would be a Megillah, and that this Megillah, which talks about Esther, has 12,192 letters. That's 800 years in advance. So anyway, so this guy uh, said to the vice member, he says, that's incredible, right? And we remember that you still have to include those letters with the narrative. You still have to, the Torah tells us about that. So within the narrative of other topics, you still have to have that, right? What a code. So he asked Rav Weissman, he says, that's great for Esther, what about Mordechai? Where is he? So the Chazal tells us that Mordechai, as Marumas, is alluded to in a Pesach, Merod Ror, you know? So, so anyway, so Rav Weissman told him, I don't know. Come back next year, maybe I'll figure that out. So he told him. So the guy came back the next year, and he says, well, did you figure it out? I says, yes. So the the uh, so it says more draw I think it's Tzavah. This week's Mershkit. Yeah, that's right. So if the mem, right? You start from the mem, which is Mordechai, right? And you count twelve thousand one hundred ninety-two letters. It spells out Reish. Another twelve thousand one ninety-two spells out Dalit, Chof, Yud, Mordechai. What is the probability? That means whoever wrote that has to know, 800 years in advance, that there's going to be a story, not just of Esther, but of Mordechai. You can know Mordechai too. And he has to know that there's going to be a Megillah written. And he has to know that how many letters are, right? Who, 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 that's besides all the narrative that the Torah anyway is dealing with. The probability of these two codes is almost beyond belief. That, you know, it's within chance that this should have occurred is beyond belief, you see, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, this person, he had a, a certain woman over who was very good in mathematics. So he told her these two codes. So she said, ah, come on. It's, there's a probability for this. Uh, so he said she went. She was invited for Shabbos. She went to her room and she sat up all night calculating the probabilities, you see. And she came out in the morning and she was crying. And she said that there is no probability for this. It's, this, it's not a probability, you know. You know, maybe it's one followed by you know, 400 zeros. You can't do this, you know. Esther, Mordechai, the exact amount as the McGill. Anyway, so, and that was it. So, and she was a fried girl. So then he said, the guy writes that a couple years later, he was at a wedding. And some woman walked over to him and said, do you remember me? And he said, no. He says, I was the girl that was at your house. And she had a shade on. And she married a guy who was a koilo. That's the story. But it's, a, it's, it's, it's probably the greatest quote I've ever heard that has no probability. Uh, it just shows you only a god who's omniscient could write this kind of a, a, a code. In a Megillah, you know, which is 800 years after the giving of the Torah, 
It is actually beyond belief. I wanted to share that with you because it's such an incredible uh, uh, code. There is no way to refute it. Only God could have written that code, period. You know. Anyway, um, this is the concept of the Megillah, uh, the certain ideas that I've expressed. Uh, and now you understand who Amalek is, who Homan is, what their sheet was, their belief system, and why in many ways they are the greatest enemy of God. Because to believe in God and to nullify Him is the worst thing you can do. Because there's no tshuva. You will never repent for that. Because you believe in God. What's the problem? You see? And the great tragedy is that, like I pointed out, all the religions have done a job of compromising God. Thank you. Any questions? Any questions? Two. Two for the price of one, huh? Which is the loophole? Who? Which is the loophole of the compromission of Islam? Islam? Yes. The What's their loophole? Yes. Quran says, kill the Jews. I think that's a loophole. The second, Amalek, is an offspring. What was that? Amalek. Yes. He's an offspring of Yitzhak. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's actually a grandson of Esau. Yeah. Yeah. Because he belongs to us. Yes, you're right. So does the reformed and conservative, right? They also belong to us. Yeah. What can we do, right? Yeah. What's going to be with Mashiach, with Amalek when Mashiach comes? What the role or what will happen to the concept Amalek? Well, ultimately speaking, the Amalek is the end. Amalek is the end, and uh, the one who is an Amaleki is Goik. Goik from the land of Mokoik is an Amaleki, right? And he ultimately will unite the world against the Jews, especially Jerusalem. Uh, my feeling, which I've expressed in my lectures on tape, is that the UN is the representative of, of, uh, of, of, of Amalek. The Gemapi of Goigumogog is 70, and there are 70 nations. There are branches, but there are really 70 nations. And uh, the UN is against Jerusalem. It's incredible. They, they actually are fulfilling the whole role of, uh, of Amalek. By, uh, oh, Yechezkel, when it says against Jerusalem. Yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, uh, anyway, yeah. So that's, that's, I hold it to the UN. Yeah. Because the, the terrible uh, slaughter of the Jews that the Torah talks about the Chazal, the Holocaust absorbs the slaughter. So, so the war against from Gregor Amalek will not uh, be a, a, a war in which there's tremendous amount of death of Jews. It won't be that way. But there will be confrontations. But in the end, it will be Amalek uh, against the Jewish people. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and it is. They hate the Jews. The UN is a body you know, that represents the world. It, it's incredible how they hate the Jews, you know. You know, I mean, like it says in the second chapter of Tilam, Lama Rokshu Amim, why are the nations excited, you know, and all agitated? And to Rokshu Amim, all the nations, you see, on God and on his anointed one. And that's exactly what happens, you see. And that's why it's so interesting what, that Trump is such a reversal of that whole concept, you know. He's going to make the capital of Jerusalem. I heard they're accelerating the whole process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, like what? 
Like, it's almost like he's tripping over himself to get the embassy there. This isn't normal. It takes time. On your by your mind, yeah, yeah, which is beyond belief, yeah. And that's not, and because, like I said, Trump is a messianic figure that has to bring a tahara to Edom, Esau. And that's why God is destroying the Democrats, it's a whole, you know, and so on, you know. Uh, you know, because they're the rush of Esau in America. And uh, it's interesting to see what's going on, even with Netanyahu and so on. But anyway, this is all an acceleration of the process. So the creation of anti-Semitism was a very integral part of Hashem's plan. Well, let's put it this way. God doesn't make them hate Jews. It's his man's bechira. He has choice, you know? He doesn't want nations to hate the Jews because by hating the Jews, they destroy themselves. Like it says, v'nivrechu mm b'cho -hmm. by Avram Avinu, in all the nations of the world, we bless you. So if you're gonna hate the Jews, what are you doing? You're cutting your nose to spite your face. Does this make sense? Yeah. Uh, but that's stupid. They don't realize that everybody who stands up against the Jews is destroyed. I mean, just take a look at the whole history, you know? And this is what they do, you see? But listen, until the Mashiach arrives, you know? But Hashem, Dr. wanted to create us as a minority and give us a hard time. He could have created us as a majority. No. He didn't. <clears throat> well, actually, I never really. I, I don't. That. Yeah, I know. I, I want to give somebody else a chance. I can respond to that. It's going to take too long. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> what was that? Uh, question is that you uh, you said that everything uh, have a reason for yes. uh, for events. So yes. this uh, events of Purim. What what is the reason that this happened? And when you said that... Uh, why Purim happened? Why, why punishment? Why this Gezerah happened? Well, the Gezerah happened because they all ate at the Suda of mm -hmm. They all ate at that meal when he was celebrating the fact that the Beis Amigdash was never built. That's, that, that is blasphemy. And that's why, that's why it happened. But that's not really why it happened. That's why it happened in the immediate. But the real reason why it happened is not that. Purim was a setup, but I don't want to go into the whole setup because I'll be here another half hour. Anyway, you mentioned that at the end, that uh, Jews didn't return. Jews what? Didn't return to Israel. Yeah, with Israel, correct. Yes. But this happened before Purim. This happened 11 years before when. Uh, no, when Ezra Purim. happened after Purim. Huh? Ezra happened after Purim. Oh, Ezra, yes, I said that. Uh, you said the Jews didn't return to Eretz Israel. With Ezra, correct. Not with Ezra, before, after Koresh permission. Uh, that's what I understood. That's what it was. Koresh was a grandson of Esther or son of Esther. And Koresh was after the event of Purim, not before. Right? No. Yeah. As far as I remember, he was an event after. He's the one who gave permission. No, no, the Jews were in Persia, Babylon, then Persia, but they got permission by the, uh, either was the son of Esther or the grandson of Esther that gave them permission to return. We probably talk about another people. Whatever. Okay. Uh, but anyway. When Koresh died, next was a Kashwar or something. That's what Koresh would have to go. Whatever. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah. All right. So you, you said that, that man in general um, has to be somebody. Correct. But, but we as Jews are exempt from that because we already are somebody? No, 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 no. 
No. Everybody wants to be somebody, including Jews. Right. The incredible thing is that Judaism says that if you are a nobody, which means God is completely over you, then you will be a somebody. It's a paradox, mm -hmm. isn't it? That's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. It's a paradox. Yeah. Where, where, you know, it's the more you uh, annul yourself to God, the greater somebody you are. But that's the reverse, because you are completely uh, being novatal yourself to God. So how could you feel like a somebody if you're completely denying your uh, independence or whatever? But that's the paradox. Then the answer to that is because God is the only somebody. You see, you, we have a delusion of being somebody. You know, it's like they say, you know, this guy has grand delusions of, 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 of adequacy. Yeah, that's, you know, that delusion is adequate, you know. You know? But the only way really is uh, to believe that, um, uh, you know. Uh, so therefore by, by connecting to the only being that is somebody, you actually become somebody. So ultimately the test of man is to remove the delusion. You see, I mean there's a great deal to talk about that. This whole concept of being somebody is ridiculous. Why do you have to be somebody? You already are somebody. <laughs> you think tigers walk around saying I gotta be somebody? The only reason why a tiger will attack anybody is to eat. The only thing animals are concerned with is what's called territory. You, you, you know, you're muzzling on my territory, I can't eat, you know? But you never find an animal that has to express its sense of self. There's no thing as an animal on an ego trip. You see? Because the, the, the whole thing is a myth. You know? Why do you have to be somebody? You already are somebody. You see? Anybody else? Yeah? Given the divine plan and how things are going to happen, yes. the scope for, for choice, for free choice, is what? Just to choose whether you're going to, what side you're going to be on? Well, the, the ultimate battle is between self and God. Think about that. Who is the boss? Think about that, you know? It's either man or God. That's the war, you see? And you find that by other mission. That was the war. Does he want to be God or will he s become subservient to God? It, is your concern self and the, and the uh, fulfillment and the enhancement of self? Or is your concern to submit to God? You see, and to do his will. That's the ultimate battle. And then you have all the different manifestations of that battle. But that's really the end. Judaism is nothing more than a statement that I am, you are not. You need to serve me, and if you serve me, guess what? Then you will be am. <laughs> it's really what it is. You want to be an am? Serve me. If you don't serve me, you're not. <laughs> it's very simply said, but that's basically what it's all about, you know? <clears throat> okay? Anybody else? Thank you. Oh, uh, one more question? One more, one more. Yeah, go ahead. You mentioned 70s, the number 70s. Yes. Yes. And then and Ezra yeah. didn't, wasn't uh, Mashiach because... The they didn't come, yeah. Only 70 came with him. Yeah. Does that relate anything to the... 80% that, that you said in your last lecture it's not going to happen. But the fact that the, the, the Yehudim in, would you say, America, that they're so comfortable and they're so everything, well, does it, is there any co correlation? Do you, do you feel that the comfort of, of the uh, of, of Yehudim in, 
in America that just uh, are not going to come here? You talk about Israel? Yeah, yeah, Israel. You know, in order for Jews to come to America, Israel has to change. What did I say? In order for Jews from America to come to Israel, Israel has to change. Israel has changed. Israel, in many ways, although, you know, obviously you can practice religion and so on, but Israel, unfortunately, is hostile to Judaism. You see it all the time. You see? Israel is a very secular society. In fact, it's not even a democracy. It's not a democracy because it's a matter of musical chairs. They appoint each other. There's no vote. You don't vote for a person. You vote for a party. So therefore, all the allegiance is toward the party, not to the people. It's not even a democracy, really. It's an oligarchy. Where a bunch of men control the government, but Israel, unfortunately, is a uh, is a secular society. You see, and the Haredim exist here, to, and they struggle here to maintain society uh, and to maintain themselves. You know, so uh, the, the Jews will come to Israel eventually, but this place has to change. <coughs> the Eruv the Rav has to go. The Eruv Rav is fundamentally the Israeli government. And they are, in many ways, hostile. Not everybody, but there's a great deal of the, of the government that's hostile to Judaism. They're not hostile to Jews. See, people confuse that. You know, they're, they're, they're Jews, and, they're, and there's an obvious Israel. There's no question. But they're hostile to God, to Judaism. You know, they don't promote it. On the contrary, they put up enormous amount of obstacles, and so on. I mean, there's so many different ways. The, the educational system, they don't... The kids walking around in public school here that don't even know Shema Israel. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's beyond belief, you know. Uh, and therefore, uh, I believe that it will only really change when the Israeli government is removed. And God will do that very shortly. Um, We're actually in the process of doing it. Yeah. <laughs>